Welcome to One Tough Podcast. Well, today I have two really interesting guys that I know for a long time. I got my friend Ira Rosen, the man of 60 Minutes, with the ticking clock book that is a phenomenal book, and I tell everyone, buy it. He brings you into the world of 60 Minutes that I watch, even though I don't like some of the stuff they do. I watch it every Sunday at 7 o'clock. I make sure I do. And my other friend, Peter Schweitzer. Now, Peter and I, we know each other from afar, from uh, Fox News. I was a contributor for 12 years, and I was very impressed with a lot of your stories. And I call you two guys, I'm a detective. You guys are detectives too. You could call yourself investigative reporters, whatever you want to use it. But I say you're a detective because you detect the truth and you go in there and you find out what it's all about. And some of the books, Peter, that you've been involved in, Architects of the Ruin, and what was that about? Give me a little short blurb on it. That was on the 2008 uh, financial collapse and, and who was responsible for it, which was largely Wall Street and some regular le- regulators in Washington. Well, how about Andrew Cuomo? <laughs> no? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. He's in the book as HUD secretary <laughs> and, you know, the notion that we're going to give bank loans to anybody who basically wants them. Um, that and, that and, generated from Washington. And, of course, Wall Street was there to uh, capitalize on it. And that book is still available for people to learn how on Amazon yeah. and elsewhere. And then the uh, secret empires, what was that about? That was about uh, how uh, politicians from both political parties are offshoring their corruption. They don't take the payments themselves. They direct the payments to family members uh, and other people that don't have to report it. And that's where we originally broke the story on Hunter Biden's foreign dealings in China and elsewhere. Well, I had some involvement personally at Rudy Giuliani's apartment looking at the actual laptop. And uh, it's quite, it was quite uh, uh, eye-opening, to say the least. And then the other book was Throw Them All Out. And that book you worked in conjunction with my friend Ira? Yes, I wrote a book called Throw Them All Out. Um, that's around the time when I met Ira, and we ended up doing a 60-minute segment that really broke wide open the story of insider trading on the stock market uh, by politicians. Uh, It's illegal for us to engage in insider trading, but uh, until this story came out and forced Congress to act, um, it was quite acceptable for them to do it. And, you know, it's funny, Bo, when when I did the research on that and I shared it with Ira, um, one of the things that we all, all laughed about was there was this academic study that said, you know, the average person underperforms the stock market with their stock picks the average hedge fund beats the market by 5%, and the average U.S. senator beat the market by 12%. Oh, um, wow. And, you know, the question there is, Bo, are they that much smarter than everybody else, or is there something else going on? And I think we figured out what was going on. You know what, Peter and, and Ira, I'll be very honest with me personally. You know, I ran for United States Congress. I lost by 2,500 votes in the area. It was 7 to 1 Democrat, 86. And I ran for mayor, and it was, they threw me off all the lines. I couldn't be a Republican. I couldn't be a Democrat. But what really kind of pisses Bo Dietl off is the fact that all these people go in to the Congress and go into the United States Senate and they go in there with a salary of a couple hundred grand and they go in there with nothing. They own mortgages on the house. And then after five, 10 years, they have this value. I mean, just look at our former president of the United States. I, every one of them. This is not a political as, uh, version of what I'm talking about. Republicans and Democrats, the same as the like. And then they become worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And something is wrong with that picture. And I'm sure I'd love you to bring us into that world, Ira and Peter, about where these people, how do they set this up? I know there's about, what, 3,000 lobbyists in Washington, about 3,000 lobbyists. 
Well, let me tell you one of the things that sort of when when I was exploring, investigating Congress, I had one congressman come to me and he gave me a card and he said, this is how much money I have to raise in order to be on this committee, even though I have the seniority. And this is the amount of money I have if I want to be chairman. Wow. It was literally, I mean, these guys were like gangsters who had to kick up to the top. And what they do is called dialings for dollars. And they end up going to the Republican club or the Democratic club. And they have to do this almost on a daily basis. And they their phone banks set up. And they're calling and calling and calling. Now, people are not giving these people money because they like them or they're good looking. They're giving them money because they want something from them. Access. And they, they can't advance in Congress unless they raise that money. And, and the, I, I knew this one guy who, who unfortunately passed away, Walter Jones, a Republican from North Carolina, who refused to partake in the system. He was in Congress for more than 20 years. He couldn't even get a committee assignment because he wow. refused to play the game. Wow. Now, you know, like I said, I dabbled in politics. I hate it. I hate politics. All they are is a bunch of lying bastards. And I raised a lot of money for a lot of politicians. But I know one thing. It's all about raising. Then you have to kick up to the, whether it be the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee. Part of your money is that you're raising. That doesn't all go to you. You have to kick it up to the national party. And if you're in a congressional, it's a national congressional committee and the Senate committee. So there's so many levels of kicking up cash to those areas. And then whoever's in charge, if you're a higher up in there and you're on a committee or a committee head, if you don't kick up enough money, you ain't getting appointed to anything is what you're well, saying. Well, the best committee assignments are where they can raise the most money. So let's say someone, let's take someone like Senator Schumer. Yeah. Now, Schumer, who, you know, was from New York, you would think he's, you know, Mr. Liberal, he'd want to advance housing and all this stuff. He's on the Senate Banking Committee. And why is that? Because that's where the money's at. The banks mm. have the money and he's able to go there and he collects the money and he's able to meet his quota number in order to be, you know, the boss. Yeah, and you know, one of my dear departed friends, and I'm sure you guys know who he was, dear departed Mel Weiss. Mel Weiss was one of the leading Democratic fundraisers who happened to be to the left of Edward Kennedy politically, and we became loving friends. And one thing I said to Mel, let's not talk about politics, please, because I don't like you. I don't like your Hillary Clinton, and as far as what Hillary Clinton and her husband's all about, I don't like them, so let's keep that out. We'll play golf, and we don't talk politics, but that's another whole side of it. And I would really love, Peter and Ira, today to get in to some meat. Let's name some names and let's target this show that these are people that are making money that are questionable under the auspices of being a congressperson or a senator. Simple. Peter, why don't you, Peter, it, it all began in many ways on the insider trading uh, story that you and I did in 2012, but it continued recently. And, you know, you know the story of Senator Burr, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there are numerous examples, and of course, we'll give examples from both political parties, but it's really important to emphasize this is not a Republican problem, a Democrat problem, it's a human problem. Uh, and, and the problem is, is that if you're an elected official in the United States today, you have access to enormous amounts of information, and you can get very creative in the manner in which you can actually increase your personal wealth. Um, so part of that is insider trading, and you have Senator uh, Burr from North Carolina, 
who clearly was getting briefings on where the pandemic was going in the early weeks and months of the pandemic uh, and was able to uh, engage in serious stock trades. He sold a lot of stock. It was totally out of proportion with the kind of transactions he had done before. Uh, and he avoided losses of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So one of the ways you can do it is by doing the stock trading. Another one, and this is something that Ira uh, covered in the 60 Minutes story we did together, is you can get access to IPO shares of stock, initial public offering. Uh, I call them um, invest in politicians um, <laughs> because that's really what you're doing. So let's say, Bo, for example, you're a senator from the state of New York. Um, if I give you a shoebox with $100,000 of, of cash in it, uh, and we get caught, um, that's, that's bribery, and, and both of us are going to go to jail. But if you're a senator from New York and, and I want a favor, um, I can give you access to pre-public shares of stock. And a lot of times with these IPOs, even, um, even, you, know, you even, can buy shares at $11 a share, and within the day, they're, they're trading at $100. That One reminds of the people we profiled in that in that uh, book was uh, in the uh, story was Nancy Pelosi, who I think at that time had obtained uh, at least eight to ten IPO shares of stock, which generated huge amounts of money. There are Republicans that have done this too, wow. um, and they have to now disclose if they're getting IPO shares of stock, but they can still do it, and that's but a it, way for them to make hundreds of thousands of dollars bone a single day. Now well, we have. We focused, yeah. Well, when we did the story, we focused on Pelosi's. She got an. She and her husband got an IPO um, with a credit card company. At the same time, there's major credit card legislation that was kind of hanging out in Congress. And they didn't know if it's going forward and not going forward. She gets this IPO and she made she and her husband made, uh, I think, over one hundred thousand dollars in four days after it went public. Now, but I mean, yeah, that, that was at the time legal. And guess what happens? So we do the story. Right. And it's it's uh, we get a big pat on the back. We get a lot of sponsors in Congress. It passes the Senate. Barack Obama mentions it in the State of the Union. Uh, it, 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 I get invited to the White House signing. I got a front row seat. Boy, oh boy, this is what reporting's all about. You know what happened? A couple months later, by voice vote, they rescinded the whole thing and it's back to business as usual. So in other words, the, there, there are what they call ethic committees in Congress and Senate, is there not? Are they just, just powerless? So where, where are the ethic committees on this? Why, why, why is this someone like Pelosi held in uh, to, to stand up and answer for what she did? Well, I, you know, part of it, Bo, unfortunately, if you sit on the ethics committee, let's say, and in this particular case, you'll get money too. <laughs> you know, are, are you really, if you're sitting on the ethics committee and you're a Democrat in the Pelosi case, are you really going to go aggressively at the Speaker of the House that you need to pass your legislation? And same thing for Republicans. No. So it's the, the big problem is Congress is basically telling us we will police ourselves. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Well, I'm sorry that, does, you know, we're going to tell Wall Street to police themselves. Or are we going to tell, you know, um, any corporation in America? No, you need to have an outside arbitrator that cannot be influenced by uh, the powers that be in swapping favors and trades. And that just does not happen in Congress. Just imagine to take Pelosi's whole career and look at all her trades and all her husband's trades that she was able to get inside information. I mean, you would definitely have a real com a criminal complaint. You know, I was involved with, once with a guy named Jordan Belfort. Dick Rosso called me in and he said they got this little guy down in the 
Long Island, and he's got a place called Stratton Oakmont, and the wise guys want to go moving in on them. What they used to do is they used to take a stock, do an IPO on a Monday, and it was $2 a share, and then he had about 12 of these uh, gophers, I call them, and they would go and they'd buy the stock in cash, like for $200,000 worth of $2 stock, and by Friday, they'd be having a party at Millie's in Great Neck, and they would sell everything out at $12, and grandma and grandpa would caught holding a bag and it just went away. And I mean, it kind of sounds like it's kind of similar into the uh, United States Congress, the way they're doing it. And the most important thing is now with the advent of all this greening, greening stuff, there's a lot of companies in solar. There's a, well, look at the, the one that comes to life. How much money was made on that one in upstate New York, that $600 million with that solar company, remember years ago when uh, uh, the president at that time was the, that Solandria, 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 what was the name of that, Peter? Uh, I, I think you're talking about Solandria, yeah, and I mean, that's yeah. another another aspect of this, and again, it happens in both administrations, but, you know, one of the reasons I'm kind of like skeptical of government is the more power government gets, the more ability they have to pick winners and losers, and so the federal government gives out huge amounts of money in terms of grants and government-backed loans, uh, and guess what? That tends to flow um, to the political supporters and financiers that put the politician in office. And that's our taxpayer money. So, you know, it, it's a problem. I think that one of the biggest things that, that I've come to realize in all of this, and I don't know if Ira or Bo, you have the same uh, impression, is a lot of people think Washington, D.C. is kind of like Jimmy Stewart. You know, he, <laughs> Mr. Smith goes to Washington, he goes there. He's kind of a good guy and all these outside forces are trying to corrupt him. That happens in some cases. A lot of times, honestly, it's not Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's the Sopranos or it's the Godfather. People go into politics and they have to create a demand for their services to raise money, to uh, get lobbying contracts for family members. So it's more extortive. They use these mafia techniques where they'll, they'll threaten, oh, well, we're going to introduce this legislation or, you know, you better uh, support me and my guys or these guys are going to do that to you. It's an extortion racket. Uh, and they use the cudgel and power of government to fundraise. One of my favorite stories that I did, I did a story about Jack Abramoff, who was a lobbyist. I remember him. Members of Congress. Now, his scam was this. He, he would go to the Indians, and there would be a congressman who would put in restrictive legislation on Indian casinos, and they would put this rider on a bill, and the Indian casinos would go crazy. They'd hire Abramoff to get rid of this thing. Meanwhile, they didn't understand that Abramoff and the congressman were in cahoots. And so he calls up the congressman. They work out a figure, a number. So the Indians contribute to the congressman. They give a big payoff to Abramoff, and they remove the thing that shouldn't have been in there in the first place. So the congressman made a lot of money. The Abramoff made a lot of money, and the Indians were extremely happy because they got rid of something that shouldn't have been in there in the first place. That is typical gangster techniques, but it's practice in the U.S. Congress. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, and you know what? It makes me feel like, guys, you know, I repeat, it makes me feel like, you know what? Maybe I want to move to Russia. You know, Putin doesn't look too bad. At least he has the iron fist and he controls these little punks in the legislature. Because when I hear more and more, now they're giving away with their infrastructure bill. They're just throwing this money out there. They have no safeguards. I know from my investigative stuff with uh, Cohen Resnick, it's a firm that 
investigates how money's being spent, excuse me, <coughs> how money's being spent. And 30, up to 30% of any one of these contracts, just look at LaGuardia Airport, they're still under construction over there. 30% minimum is a misappropriation, stealing. There is no, now there's no safeguards for what we're doing right now with the infrastructure. I am for the infrastructure. God knows our bridges. We got a bridge from 1888, the Brooklyn Bridge. I can't believe cars and trains are still driving over it. We've got to support our infrastructure, but the money has to be spent and somebody has to watch it being spent. Otherwise, there's hundreds of billions of dollars wasted, wasted. And I know on the other side of that coin, these companies that are getting these contracts, there's a filtering of money going to these congressional people that are voting for it, right? Yeah, and, and totally look, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, uh, just real briefly, I mean, and, and, you know, in the Biden administration, and a Republican would have done the same thing, who do they put in charge of doling out uh, the money from the infrastructure bill, which I thought was a good idea, too? Mitch Landrieu, the former mayor of New Orleans, um, you know, and I get it. I mean, he's a mayor, but New Orleans is a highly corrupt city. He's a politician. Uh, you know, the notion or the idea that the, the person in charge of determining infrastructure should actually be somebody who understands and knows infrastructure and is in the business. So the money is going to get doled out in a political way. It is. And again, it doesn't matter which administration. It's part of the problem. There's so much upside to corruption and so little downside uh, that, that they engage in it and they're going to keep doing it. And the numbers just keep getting bigger. It's not, very, it's, yeah. well, it's not very sexy to put in, in an infrastructure bill a mechanism to see how the money is being spent. They rather give that money to, to some road project or something like that. I mean, if a congressman would say, I think we should have $100 million for enforcement to make sure that the money is, they say, what are you, crazy? Maybe for auditor, auditors? I mean, who, what congressman is going to propose legislation for <laughs> I mean, that's not going to get that person reelected, but building a road in, in their neighborhood and giving some money to maybe some friends, that'll do the trick. Or some nonprofits that are all standing out there with their hands out, you know, like even with New York City, when you have a hundred billion dollar budget, it's quite, quite high. And we had a Mayor de Blasio there whose wife was in control of a $1.1 billion of Operation Thrive for the Mentally Ill. And when asked what you do with the money, uh, uh, I'll, I'll get back to you. No, there was no explanation with it. And there's all these nonprofits were getting money out of them. And I'll guarantee you, you put me on this thing, there was a backdoor with those nonprofits that there's a slush fund there, follow the money, and we'll follow it. Like I say, even with de Blasio, when those two fellas in Brooklyn, two Jewish fellas, got locked up for bribery, remember, and were convicted. The constitute of bribery, and I'm not an attorney, means uh, you have a briber and you have a bribe receiver. Well, you're locked up and convicted the bribers. What about the bribe receiver? Bill de Blasio. Why wasn't he prosecuted? This is part of the game again with the political game. Money's being passed back and forth. But to stay focused on what you guys are here about, I just want to hear more and more names about actuality of these bills that are floating around and which guys are making money. We talked about Pelosi. How much is she worth? Uh, the estimate. Go ahead, Peter. No, I was going to say, the estimate I've seen is 100, 100 million to 150 million. And that's not counting her husband. Uh, that includes her husband, oh. yes. She, when she first was elected uh, in, I think it was 1989, it was a special election, uh, their net worth was, I think, around $10 million. Um, and it's now, you know, 100 to $125 million. And there's all kinds of questions about legislation 
Uh, there are members of Congress from the other side, Mitch McConnell uh, and his wife, Elaine Chow. It's a little bit different because his, his uh, in-laws have this shipping company that's done very, very well with the Chinese government. Yeah. Um, he got a $25 million gift uh, from his in-laws. Um, so it's a major problem. And look, uh, and, and maybe Ira can, can talk about this at greater length. I think one of the things that's been introduced, one of the pieces of legislation that's been introduced that I like, I don't think it's going to pass, Elizabeth Warren has proposed banning members of Congress from trading um, individual stocks. You can buy mutual it. funds, you know, whatever. You cannot buy individual shares of stock. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and others are opposed to that. Uh, <laughs> and we know why they're opposed to it. There's too much money to be made. Wow, wow. The other thing, Bo, is, you know, the, the dodge that a lot of them say is, oh, I have a blind trust. And a blind trust is basically should be is I give it to you. I never talk to you. I don't steer anything. Well, when we did our story in 2012, John Boehner, for example, his defense was, oh, I don't have anything to do with it. But it turns out the person who he was involved in, he was talking to on a regular basis. So he could pass on information one way or the other, uh, if he so choose, to steer some of the stock trades. So... You know, I don't think that's going to get anywhere because they're going to say we want to participate in the American dream and participate in the stock stock purchases. So I don't think that's going to go very far, uh, that piece of legislation. But one story that Peter and I worked on, uh, which which we were just talking about before we got on, was something called leadership hacks. And Peter, why don't you pick up on that? And I'll, mm. I'll add to what we, what we ended up finding on 60. Sure. Um, yeah, leadership packs. I mean, the way to think about politicians is they have lots of pockets you can put money into. So uh, obviously you can hire one of their family members. You have a campaign committee uh, and then they have political action committees. But they also have these things called leadership packs, uh, Bo. And what's great yeah. about leadership packs is while a regular campaign committee has pretty severe restrictions on what you can spend money on. You can't you know, buy yourself a new suit. You can't get a haircut. Um, with those campaign months. Those rules don't apply to leadership packs. So we looked at what they were doing and uh, uh, Iron 60 did a story on it and it was quite shocking what, uh, what, what we found. Well, one of the people that we focused on was a congressman from uh, New Jersey named Andrews who used his leadership pack money to go golfing in Scotland. Wouldn't you like to do that, right? Another congresswoman um, from, I believe it was Arizona, uh, loaned um, money from her leadership pack to herself at an interest rate of what, 20 or 22 percent, um, which is more than the mafia charges for money on the streets. Um, and so, and a, and a third congressman we focused on used his leadership pack money to hire his two daughters who didn't have much political experience, and he hired them at a, at a very, very decent salary to work in his office. His next <laughs> was, who do I trust more than members of my own family? Yeah. You know, and, and just to not to go off again, but I just, I have two guys here that have all the intelligence and the juice that I can, you guys can answer some questions with me. I always was thinking about the Clinton Foundation. I think, Peter, didn't you do something with the Clinton Foundation? What was that, that the guy named Brand? <clears throat> What was his name? Brand? What was that company? 
the guy's name Brand, something with the company, that if you wanted to do business with the Secretary of State, you had to do business. What was that company? And and, and that company was doing so well. And then when she lost the election, it went off the board. What was that one? Yeah, that was the uh, the Clinton Foundation. And, and maybe Ira can go into the details. But, but yes, basically, the Clinton Foundation raised in 2016, when she was running for president, $67 million. Uh, the last year, it raised $16 million. Um, and it clearly, that was a conduit for outside, especially foreign influences, to try to curry favor and to gain favor with the Clintons. And that's partly, I would argue, the way it was set up. But there were some very specific examples we have, and maybe Ira can talk about those. And what about, what was the company, Ira? Ira, what was the company, Tempco, Tiemco? What was the company they would run it through if you wanted access to Hillary? Tempco or Tiemco, like that? Oh, I think you're thinking Tenio. of Tenio. Yeah, and Brand was involved with that, I think. Am I correct? Yeah, yes. But the example I think um, that we're talking about is, so Bill Clinton used to go around and give speeches, right? And so he would fly into, say, Nigeria. I think, am I right, Peter? Was yeah. Nigeria, right. And he would end up getting a, giving a speech for in excess of $500,000 for uh, a company that, who's, uh, who's the chief of staff of the, of the president of Nigeria. Now, here's where it gets really funky. Nigeria was, I think, number three on the human rights watch list of most corrupt human rights violators. And so here Bill Clinton comes in, picks up his cash, leaves, and then does a return engagement, does the same thing, gives another speech for this corrupt regime. Now, if you remember, Nigeria was also the home of Boko Haram that kidnapped all the, the, the young girls. Um, that doesn't phase anybody, right? So they go in, they collect their due. The, la the second time he went in there, I believe, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on some of these facts, Peter, he was giving out checks for the best teachers in the country. And yeah. so he's given out one check after another. Clinton leaves. Meanwhile, all those checks he gave out, those bounced like a basketball. <laughs> those people didn't collect any money. But he walked in and out of that country in less time in a week uh, spending there and collected over a million bucks. Yeah, you know. By the way, his wife happened to have been the Secretary of State at the time and had access to being releasing discretionary funds to the country. Um, uh, so there was a little bit of a shenanigans going on there. You know, I remember another, you know, they've been aware of the corruption of the government corruption. There was one case that I remember with the UBS, with the Swiss accounts over the Swiss accounts overseas, and there was tens of billions of dollars of American money tucked away there, which could have been taxed and all that. And who negotiated the settlement was one Secretary of State Hillary Clinton negotiated, and then mysteriously, Big Bill Clinton got a million and a half for a, a speech over there for UBS. I mean, it, and then they were allowed to bring all these monies back with no fines. Bring him back into the country. And what was that fella's name? I think he got $105 billion. He was the whistleblower, if you remember. Yes, yes, yes. That, to me, just stinked so, stunk so much with the Secretary of State negotiating. What was her rights? You should have had the Secretary of the Treasury negotiating, not the Secretary of State. And then all of a sudden, they were able to bring all these 
billions of dollars without penalty, bring it back into the country. I mean, people who put their money in the bank are making 2% now. <laughs> and they look at these type of things and we pay our taxes. I mean, you get outraged. This is more political corruption. Do you remember Peter, this one? Peter really did a really great reporting job on the Clinton Foundation. And um, one of the things that I remember always outraged me was that Bill Clinton had a very public office in Harlem. I think it was on 125th. 125th, yeah. 125th, maybe a block or two from Sylvia's. But in fact, his real office was across the street from Radio City Music Hall, and I'd been in it. I mean, the most expensive rent at the time in New York, the most expensive office real estate, it went on for floors and floors. And, um, you know, in here they're taking in money. So he's got this Harlem office, but he's got a huge, huge office in the middle of the most expensive. Why did the Clinton Foundation have to have offices like that? I didn't understand that. I didn't understand <laughs> Come on, Ira. You understand it. <laughs> I'm saying it anyway. But, but you know, basically, again, I, I hate to keep jumping all over, but that's the way I am. I have that, that short-minded thing because, in reality, we didn't get everything out that we originally were focusing on. I want to hear more senators, more congresspeople. Give me some more meat with some more names. Well, there was one case that we highlighted on the insider trading that I thought was particularly interesting. He was a uh, Alabama Republican. I'm trying to remember his name Marcus. right now. Bacchus. Bacchus, Spencer Bacchus. And Spencer Bacchus was the uh, ranking uh, a Republican on the um, House Finance Committee that was regulating Wall Street. And he got a briefing um, by uh, the Treasury Secretary uh, in late September uh, 2008 about, and it was apocalyptic. And we know because Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, wrote in his memoirs that he had given this briefing to members of Congress uh, and that, that uh, Bacchus was there. They were supposed to turn in their cell phones because this was so sensitive. <laughs> the next morning after this apocalyptic briefing where they said the market's going to drop, you know, 25 percent, uh, Spencer Bacchus went and shorted the market. He bought options betting, not really betting because he knew what was going to happen, that the market went down. He raised uh, he made a lot of money. Uh, 60 Minutes actually confronted uh, Bacchus and maybe Ira can, can share what happened there. Yeah, we went to his office and, and uh, he played the great dodgeball game. We, we chased them all around. We, we never located them. But um, even the members of Congress were, who, who, who have a high degree of shame uh, quotient, uh, they felt completely. And he was stripped of his chairmanship. Uh, I think he got chased out of town, uh, ultimately. Because, you know, when we did that story, what I found interesting is some people didn't realize it was legal to do, and they felt disappointed that they couldn't get a piece of it. <laughs> but but you know what? Even come a little closer, a little fresher, a little fresh meat with this Chinese pandemic. And I do call it Chinese pandemic because it certainly didn't come from uh, Italy. Uh, the point that I have is that there were some people who were on the intelligence division, Congress people that knew about how serious this was. And supposedly there was some stock manipulation from the intelligence gathering they had where they either sold stock, they knew the market was going to drop or what. Do we have any information on that? Well, what, what we found was, you know, when the virus uh, was at the very, very beginning stages of it, and I wrote about this in my book, Ticking Clock, which is 
And let me just read just this one line, which is, at least four senators dump-stocked after receiving non-public briefings, as did 24 House legislatures. By the way, Burr, the one who we mentioned earlier in this thing, was one of the only four senators to vote against the original Stock Act. Um, so, you know, that gives you a sense that these, you know, they, they, they don't learn. They saw an opportunity and they made money. And by the way, they briefed their highest donors about the coming virus and the impact it may have on the U.S. economy. So the high payers got a personal briefing while publicly they're saying, oh, everything's going to be fine, fine, fine. Wow. So to me, that I'm not a small guy, but isn't that kind of inside trading? Yeah, I mean, look, look the, the, the point that we tried to make repeatedly is, you know, if these senators, let's say, were corporate executives, they worked for a large American corporation, Apple, General Motors, doesn't matter, um, and they, they got information that, you know, COVID was going to affect their company adversely. In this case, the senators are hearing how it's going to affect, you know, certain sectors of the economy. Um, and those corporate executives traded, they dumped their own company stock um, in the same way. They'd go to jail. They go to classic jail. insider trading. Yeah, we do a lot of white collar investigations. And these are some of the things that we check on to show when we go deep, do a deep dive in that. And it's, it's a smoking gunner there. And they can't say, well, I had a feeling. I love this one. I had a feeling to get rid of that stock. But what about the phone call you had with the congressman three days before? Your feeling was good. But, but let's, let, you know, we, get, we got some time left, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about the upcoming book if that you could speak about. Basically, what is it going to kind of focus on, Peter and, and Ira? Uh, yeah, I've got a book coming out the end of January. It's, it's looking at corruption uh, on the international level. Um, and um, that's, I think, the interesting trend that I've seen. I don't know if I've seen the same thing, but corruption's become globalized. You know, 50 years ago, you worried about you know, some guy who was a you know had a, wanting it wanted a paving contract off of some in, infrastructure bill who's paying a congressman money. Well, now so much of the money is global. You've got Russian, you've got especially Chinese and other entities. And so, as our economy is globalized, so is our corruption. Um, you know, in, in my previous work, we talked about the Bidens, we talked about the McConnells. Uh, this book is going to uh, look at that at a at a much broader level. Um, and it's very disconcerting and it's very troubling. And the problem is, um, unlike the guy who wants the paving contract, um, you know, that's bad, that's corrupt, that's illegal, deal with it. This not only is illegal, I would argue, it has serious national security implications because the guy who wants the paving contract, presumably, still wants good things for his country. Right. Chinese and Russian oligarchs, I would argue, <clears throat> don't want good things for our country. And yet, uh, politicians are lining up. Um, one of the things just recently I discovered is that you have 20 former U.S. senators or senior members of Congress um, who just recently retired who are now working. They are registered lobbyists for Chinese companies linked either to the Chinese military or to Chinese intelligence. I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, I, I think I think lobbying is a dirty business, but people have a right to petition their government. But who wants to believe that a Chinese military arms company has the right to lobby Congress? Give me a break. Well, and yet these know, guys are making millions of dollars a year doing this kind of stuff. 
You know, we had a former chancellor of education in New York City, uh, Carranza, Carranza, whatever the hell his name was. This is the guy that was the chancellor that was negotiating software contracts. He leaves his job and he takes a job with the software company that he made the deal with. I mean, it has to be checks and balances where you cannot do something for a certain amount of time if you leave the public office, whether it be Congress, Senate, or even city government. They have to have controls. And it just... Speaking today just makes my stomach fall out because you realize you as an ordinary citizen have such a disadvantage. Uh, that's why people go into politics. It ain't for to be Jimmy Stewart and tell the truth. It's to get into politics and make as much money as you can. The By way the way, we've, well, we've, we've talked a lot about Congress, but it's just not just Congress. It's the Department of Defense. It's the Department of Justice. When I did the um, opiate story, there was people who was involved in enforcement efforts against drug companies who ended up leaving the Department of Justice after, after not prosecuting a particular drug company and then taking a job with a drug company. Well, Congress people, right? No, Actual Department of Justice, high-level Department of Justice officials would literally be involved in making decisions not to go after the opiate companies, and then they ended up going to lobby for those companies. Do we have any congressmen or senators that did the same with the opioid companies? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they ended up work. I mean, um, I, Orrin Hatches, who's not, who, who left the Senate, but his son was a big lobbyist for the uh, drug companies, and he was one of the biggest drug supporters, drug company supporters in the Senate. Wow. Yeah, yeah I mean, that just, just to add to that, I mean, Bo, part of the problem is, you know, lobbying. There are people who are legitimate lobbyists in the sense that they know the legislative process, they know how it's involved. But in the case of Orrin Hatch, you know, his son, God bless him, he didn't know anything about lobbying. He came fresh out of college and he was hired by a bunch of companies, pharmaceutical companies and others, to lobby. Why? because his father was a senator and the chairman of a very powerful committee. Um, you have a, 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 a senator from um, Missouri, a Republican named Roy Blunt. Uh, his wife is a lobbyist, and three of his four children have been registered lobbyists at one point or the other. You know, again, I'm not saying that you don't want your kids to do well, but it's ridiculous, uh, this idea that, you know, the way I'm gonna advance legislation is to hire this guy's kid uh, who has no experience or no knowledge about the legislative process, how is that ultimately not some form of a payoff? I, I, I don't, you know, it's just, the more I listen, and thank you guys, but it just gets my stomach really sick to realize that the corruption level in our government is, and no one's checking and balancing it. No one's doing anything about it. And if you try, you'll be knocked down, and I guess you will get reelected. Very simple. Let me give you an example that you <clears throat> would be, you know, understand. Imagine if an F top FBI mafia uh, investigator went to work for the mafia right after retiring from the FBI and then became the consigliere for like the head of the Gambino crime family. Now, would you think that was something was wrong with that? But that's going on in an, on a daily basis in Washington. Well, he would have to—he would have to be Italian in order to get made. Come on, we know that, Ira. Although then Junior wasn't all—he was half Jewish and half Italian. He got made, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, if there—you know—we're going to wrap it up very soon. But what else? You anything else you guys like to discuss before we wrap it up? 
I, I think the main thing I would say, um, and I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but you know, there there is a lot of corruption in Washington, D.C. It's people involving both political parties. But I would also say there are people, again, on both sides of the aisle, whether you agree with them politically or not, who are actually trying to do the right thing. Uh, we don't hear a lot from them. I would argue the way the system's structured, those people have a harder time advancing uh, in the leadership. So oftentimes, you know, the leadership is corrupted. I, there's a, a former member of Congress and former governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, who, um, when he was in Congress, he said, when you first get there, um, you're just thinking, oh, this is dirty. We got these fundraising lists. We got these committee assignments. He said, you stay there three or four years and what looked like a cesspool becomes a hot tub. Wow. Um, it's this corrosive process. And the point is, I like term limits, but I think it makes sense because I think, you know, the more you're in that environment, even if you're well-intentioned, it's very, very easy to get sucked in and convince yourself this is okay. And then they start to think that they deserve the personal wealth. I'm doing all this great stuff for the country. I've made this sacrifice. What's wrong with me getting a little bit of mine? So my message would be optimistic. There are some good people out there, but also you got to be willing to call out your own side. If you're only calling out the other side, uh, we're not going to deal with this problem effectively. What a, what a great antidote. And Ira, do you have a good antidote for us to leave with you? One of the stories that we ended up just touching on when we did our 60-minute story was political intelligence. And there are literally people who are hired in Washington to find out which company is going to get a, a contract, which one's not. Then they pass that on to Wall Street. And this is literally an industry that's in Washington. We touched on it a little bit in the 60-minute story, and Peter did a much better job in his book about it. But that is something I wish somebody would sort of take a second look at, because I don't think that's changed at all. Wow. Well, we really touched on a lot of things today. And I'd just like to go over some of the books here. Any of our listeners, we got a very good following. And Ira Rosen, The tick Ticking Clock, 60 Minutes. And Peter, why don't you go through the books that are available right now, Peter Schweitzer, and where they could get them. Uh, yeah, you've got uh, Profiles in Corruption, Clinton Cash, Secret Empires. They're available at Amazon or, or at fine bookstores everywhere. Yeah, and then what about our secret empires and our architects of ruin? Yep, secret empires as well. Yeah, well, all I can say, guys, I really want to thank you because this to me, I forgot about 125 podcasts. I've had some interesting people. To me, this is one of my most interesting podcasts because it affects us all. And I think when after people listen to this, they can get a little gurch in their stomach like I get, how these things are going on. When I used to look, I'll never forget when I was a kid, Joe Adabel was the congressman from South Queens. My uncle used to give him a lot of cash and he was the head of the uh, defense appropriations and he actually wanted me to become a page boy in 1962. I told my uncle, he says, you go to Washington, he used to smoke a cigar, you go, to you go to Washington, you become a page boy, this would be good for you, meet a lot of people, a lot of connections. And I says, Uncle Joey, I don't want to go to Washington. I don't want to run around with a little hat on and I don't want to be a page boy. And subsequently, I realized through my whole my life, 12 years old, my uncle was dumping so much cash to Joe Adabo, but this is the way of life. And he would get things done. And that was it. So I thought that was an accepted thing. You pay a politician and you get things done. You want to build a casino in South Queens? You pay a politician. You get things done. This is the way of life. It sucks, but guys like you, 
you, detectives like you, Peter and Ira, you're real detectives, and I want to thank you for investigating and uncovering the facts about really what's going on. What an interesting segment, and I want to thank Ira, and I want to thank you, Peter, and uh, everybody out there, buy these books. It brings you to the inside. It's great reading. We got a pandemic going on. Sit in your, in your bathroom there and start reading one of these books, and it's be gravitating to you. Thank you, and thank you again, Peter and Ira, and God bless you. Happy New Year, and may God protect your family from this this new one, the, the French Fougois, uh COVID, whatever the hell it's called now, but be careful, everybody, and, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much.